Independent Idaho podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I am the executive director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. LINK is a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans across the lifespan to live the life of our choosing. You can learn more about LINK at linkidaho.org. Our guest today is Kelly Buckland. Kelly is a person with a disability who has been actively involved in disability issues since 1979. Originally from a farming community in Eastern Idaho, he served for more than 20 years as the first executive director of the Living Independence Network Corporation and the first director of the Idaho State Independent Living Council here in Boise. Over the years, Kelly has been honored with numerous state and national awards, including the University of Idaho President's Medallion, the Hewlett Packard Distinguished Achievement in Human Rights Award, Outstanding Alumni of Boise State University, and Outstanding Alumni of Drake University. Kelly has a long history with the National Council on Independent Living, or NICL. He served as NICL's Vice President from 2001 to 2005, as NICL's President from 2005 to 2009, and as NICL's Executive Director from 2009 to 2021. Kelly graduated from Boise State University with a bachelor's degree in social work and Drake University with a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. Today, Kelly is a disability advisor with the Department of Transportation, and he joins us from his home in Virginia to talk about improving access for disabled riders across our public transportation systems. Let's get into it. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on the Independent Idaho podcast. This is this is great to have you on talking about uh, accessible public transportation. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's always such a pleasure for me to check in with my friends in Idaho. I still love and miss you guys dearly. So, well. Uh, we miss you as well, and anytime we get a chance to connect and hear what you're doing and the important work you got going on is is a real pleasure. And today is no different. Um, want to talk about uh, want to talk about your work right now as a disability advisor with the department, the federal department of transportation. But first, I want to want to ask you to to give our listeners a little background about the National Council on Independent Living, where you were a, a, a board a vice chair, a board president, and then you went on to be the executive director for a number of years. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about that organization, why it's important, and some of the priority issues that you worked on during your tenure? Oh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, interestingly enough, this all sort of came about 
uh, because of my position as the State Independent Living Council Director in Idaho, um, I was on the board of Nickel. Well, no, I wasn't on the board. Hold on a second. Um, but I was going to like Silk Congress and other other things with uh, the State Independent Living Councils. And somebody brought up, because um, they wanted to split off and become a separate group, the National Association of State Councils. And so uh, we were debating that. And one of the things that came up was they said, well, you can't be on the nickel board if you're a silk director. And so just to prove them wrong, I ran for the board, got elected. So I, I got on the nickel board. Um, and then, you know, they um, elected me vice president, which is a two-year term, but I got uh, elected to two terms. So I served four years as that, which is really a cool job because basically you are uh, overseeing all of the advocacy committees of Nickel, uh, which kind of was like the one I, re I really wanted, you know, as you know, I've really been heavily involved in legislative issues anyway. And so to sort of oversee all the advocacy legislative advocacy committees at nickel was like really cool so yeah i took the took the job and then um was asked to run for chair or um president of nickel so i did that um uh, and did that also for two two-year terms uh all of this while i was at the state independent living council in idaho um just um as you may guess, I think Nichols got like 35 different committees at any one time. There's about four or 500 people from around the country serving on those. And there are a number of uh, legislative committees on, on almost everything like housing, social security, uh, and transportation. So I uh, spent a lot of time talking about transportation there. And then when the director left in 2009, at Nickel, um, they asked me to apply for the job, and uh, I really didn't want to. I sort of reluctantly did it, um, but you know, happy I did. I mean, it moved me to I, it moved me to DC, and um, I was the director there for twelve years. So altogether, like being on the board. You know, four years as vice president, four years as president, and then 12 years as um, the director, there's 20 years right there just on the board and in leadership positions at Nickel. So uh, really enjoyed it. I've always held uh, Nickel dear, near and dear in my heart. So uh, I was lucky enough to, to serve them in those different kinds of capacities. And what and and what what do you think were the top, I don't know, three issues? There's so many. I mean, you you named a bunch of committees. Clearly, each of those committees touches on a particular issue that is important um, for our community. And I'm I'm wondering what in in your time there were the the handful of issues that you felt really passionate about that you shepherded and um, you know tried to advance while you were working nickel. 
Well, one of them was funding for centers. Like that, that, that was one of, that was one of my most important things because centers really can't work on the budgets they have. I mean, they're so chronically underfunded anyway. That was probably my top priority. And reauthorization of the Rehab Act, making sure that we gave legislative kinds of uh, change to how centers were governed by the federal government and how uh, they held power with the federal government. So that's the reauthorization of the Rehab Act was also another one of my big passions. I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, personal assistance services, obviously, that was a one that was near and dear to my heart. We spent a lot of time on it. That was inclusive of healthcare, healthcare, obviously. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of work to fight off the, the attempts to uh, repeal the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as it's really titled. And for those people who don't know, when uh, that was being debated in Congress, uh, the Nickel Conference happened right around that same time. And we had all these people in town, like like 1,000 or 1,500 people from all over the country with disabilities in town at that time. And we, endor- or we uh, enlisted the support of a number of other national disability groups to join us in protesting the the attempts to repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act, we actually a number of us got got arrested in the rotunda of the Capitol building, made a bunch of noise, and then uh, during the Nickel Conference, we held a demonstration in the Hart Senate building. And for anybody that's ever been in the Hart Senate building, you know how much it echoes inside of there. And with every, you know, with a thousand people like chanting and stuff, uh, it really echoed throughout that building. And we were actually, uh, I or I was with a few other people meeting with some of the senators in their offices. And you could hardly hear yourself talk over the chanting that everyone was doing. And uh, Senator McCain from Arizona actually walked through there uh, while everybody was demonstrating and chanting and stuff. And that same night or early in the morning, actually, I think it was like two o'clock the next morning, uh, Senator McCain, that's when Senator McCain gave the thumbs down uh, on the repeal, that famous video of him giving the thumbs down. Uh, that was right after we demonstrated at the Hart Building. And I believe to this day, that we had a huge impact on him voting the way that he did. And it was that one vote that made the difference. So we, we definitely had an impact on healthcare. So those are those are the main issues I think of when I think about working in Nickel. Wow. I remember I remember that vote. I remember watching uh I believe I was watching TV, watching that happen actually. Maybe it was on the news, maybe it was a, a Already clip, but I re- I specifically remember that and was like, wow, that's um, that's incredible. And to hear that story of what was going on behind the scenes um, is is even more incredible. Um, powerful experiences in D.C. and Nickel has played such an important role in getting 
getting folks with disabilities to DC and having a presence and meeting with lawmakers, um, certainly advancing policy issues important around uh, housing and employment, education and, and transportation. And, and so was that the, how did you, I mean, how does one become a disability advisor to the Department of Transportation or any other federal agency? What uh, was that something you were approached about before you uh, um, ended your tenure at Nickel? Uh, was that something, an opportunity that came up after? Who who, appro- who exactly approached you, and how did how did you how did you land in that role? Well, it it's something that came up after. I mean, I. I had made the decision to retire from nickel like at least two years before I did it. And fr- you know, frankly, one of the things that motivated me to do that uh, was the death of my wife. When, when Merle died, uh, you know, I just really sort of reevaluated a lot of things in my life. And, and I just kind of, one of them was, I felt like it was time for me to leave nickel. So I gave the, the, the board president and vice president, notice at that time like two years before i did it and um and then we i think a form we formally announced it like a year later i think something like that and you know just uh i've always been involved in politics and i'll you know been involved in democratic politics uh, and tony quello's been a good friend of mine and so he had me serving on the the uh Democratic Disability Caucus um, or a committee, and I chaired I chaired like the the policy committee, where we looked at all the different sort of platforms that we were we were advancing as as uh, disability issues in the Democratic Party, and uh, it was I think it was basically you know knowing Tony and knowing and serving on that committee that sort of got me into the whole being offered a job in the federal government i you know like i never really aspired to work for the feds i mean some people want to work for the federal government it wasn't me i really enjoyed like nonprofit work and, and enjoyed the freedom it gives you to do anything like like demonstrating in the rotunda is not something you could do as a federal employee so I mean, it was really, it was not something that I had really aspired to be as a federal employee, but, um, but when Biden got elected and the whole, uh, infrastructure bill and all that stuff was, uh, was in the works, it just, um, it was an interest of mine to work for the feds. And so, um, I let a few people know I was interested in that and, um, they ended up, uh, the White House ended up offering me this position at the Department of Transportation. It was actually DOT contacted me, and I I uh, interviewed with some folks at DOT, and then they ended up offering me the position. So that's kind of how it works. I mean, you got to get into politics if you if you want to be appointed to one of these kinds of positions, but it really didn't have anything to do with me leaving nickel. That decision was made on a completely different and for a different reason. I, I also thought it was really important that nickel have a transition 
to a younger, um, marginalized uh, representative, someone who represented other marginalized groups rather than, so um, that was really kind of one of the reasons I retired from nickel was really to just, uh, I thought it was time to turn the reins over to somebody new and younger and uh, who represented other marginalized groups. I really was hoping like a young woman of color would get the position. So who had a disability at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's f- focusing on the transportation um, issue. There's so much to unpack. Like there's, you have so many different modes of transportation, public transportation. You've got the airlines, you've got buses, you've got trains, you've got, um, you know, even within each of those categories, uh, there's there's a lot of diversity in terms of what that those transportation modes look like. And before we, I think, break down a little bit for our listeners, the the work and the opportunities and historically some of the challenges in each of those categories, um, you know, there may be there may be folks listening to this who who don't even really have a good sense of what the heck we're talking about when we talk about, you know, accessibility issues when it comes to transportation. Like maybe maybe somebody might realize that, oh, hey, there might be a Greyhound bus that if you're a chair user, it's, you know, you're going to have a hard time getting on that bus. But it, it you know, when you start looking at traveling it, by commercial airliner or you look at traveling across the country uh, or even across the city by rail, the the barriers and the even just the level of physical discomfort and medical risk that comes to a person with a disability, not to mention to very expensive mobility equipment like a power chair or a manual chair or things of that nature. There's just so much. And so maybe highlight for listeners who are unfamiliar, who've never traveled with a disability or have traveled with a, a friend or a loved one or family member with a disability. Um, what are we talking about, really? Why, why is this even an issue? Why are we concerned about accessibility with transportation? Um, and not even at a high policy level, like, you know, it's important for employment, it's important for education, it's important to be able to see your family across the country. Just literally from, a, from an individual traveling perspective and maybe your perspective, what are the things that that you experience as a person with a disability traveling by train or by by airliner and i'm happy to throw in some examples too because i know we all have them yeah i think everybody with a disability does actually so i think i you know i think uh, transportation is one of those things that's so incredibly important and affects people like daily uh but we don't often think of it as having that much impact on us um if you think about it, I mean, really, the way the ADA came about, one of the major focuses was uh, was accessible transportation. So, ADAPT, um, who, I mean, I think in a lot of ways could be credited for the passage of the ADA. I mean, I think the independent living movement and a lot of other uh, advocates with disabilities made that happen. But ADAPT played a key role, especially when you think about the um, capital crawl, 
Uh, and their acronym at that time stood for accessible for Americans with disabilities for accessible public transit. So, I mean, that was what it was. It was all about transportation. And that led to the ADA. And then, you know, it's affected transportation in so many ways. Um, didn't used to be you could even catch a city bus, but now you can. They're all accessible. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of different modes of transportation. I mean, there's there's uh, over the road buses, as you mentioned, Greyhound. Um, there, they now are required to be accessible. There's um, there's Amtrak, which is also required to be accessible. But you know, you and I talked about a trip I made from uh, Sacramento to to uh, Chicago on their long haul train, which was a three day trip. So I spent three nights on that train. It was in the what quote unquote accessible room was not accessible. Couldn't even turn around in it. Uh, couldn't reach any call buttons. It was freezing cold. I mean, it was a horrible experience. Uh, and then, you know, air travel, everybody's got their, their nightmare for air travel. And not one, but probably multiple nightmare stories about traveling on the plane. Um, ironically, the, you know, Ingracia Figueroa, who, um, who her injuries received on a United flight, she died uh, one year ago this month. So um, it's kind of a sad anniversary in that regard, but she's done a lot to call attention to the problem about traveling in the air for people with, with disabilities, especially those who use wheelchairs. So, I mean, yeah, and then we've got automated vehicles, we've got electric vehicles, and are they taking disability into consideration? Well, not without us pushing for it or not. So there's really a lot of work to do around automated and electric vehicles too, and, and electric charging stations. So, um, there's, there's a lot of different facets, and, and I'm not even talking about ships. So there's all the stuff around ships, too. But I really feel like I landed in a, such a, a great spot. You know, I'm working for Secretary Pete. He's a great boss. He's a, he's a really, really, really intelligent guy who uh, has a lot of passion around transportation. We ended up having, like, the Jobs Act and the infrastructure bill and now the deficit reduction or not deficit reduction inflation reduction act all those bills put more money into the pockets of or into the coffers at dot to work on transportation stuff we're going to be rebuilding airports buying new trains uh building bridges highways sidewalks bus stops buying city buses uh, i mean the list goes on and on the impact we're going to have on transportation uh, while I'm here is going to be a once in a generation uh, opportunity. So I'm really lucky to be where I'm at, uh, really lucky to be working for the agency that I am. And so uh, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, we're lucky you're there too. Um, I, you know, when, when maybe we start with, maybe we start with uh, commercial airliners and, you know, you probably had the same experience I've had. I mean, you, you use a chair and, you know, from folks listening who may not have traveled with somebody who uses a chair or traveled by chair, 
Um, you you literally to get on the plane and into a seat, you have to leave your chair, which is built specifically for you and in, in your physical health and mobility. And you've got to get into what's called an aisle chair. And, you know, you hope and that's a little skinny, narrow chair that you have no control over. You don't you don't dictate where it goes or how fast. Um, and you hope that the attendants, you know, that are usually contract employees of the airport or the airliner airlines, they know what they're doing, that they can safely uh, position you, move you onto the plane, position you uh, so that you can transfer into your seat on that commercial airliner. Um, it is not always a smooth or safe process. Uh, you know, you can, you can get, you can get, uh, you know, hit your arms, hit your knees, hit your head. Uh, you can be dropped. Um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's some real risk that comes along with handing over your independence to somebody you don't know in a moment in a, you know, in an airport, hoping that they've been tra trained properly and, can get you safely onto that plane and into that seat. Um, you know, even the airlines themselves have gotten smaller. The space that passengers have have gotten smaller and smaller, it feels like, over the years. Um, they are not palatial airline seats like they used to be with the free meals and drinks. Um, it is basically steerage. You're, you're essentially a, a, a cattle piece of, you know, uh, your ranch item that is put into a corral and it's really uncomfortable. And it's one thing just to be uncomfortable, but when you're trying to make sure that you're moving your body uh, around enough that you're not sitting in one place, because when you do that, you can cause some, you know, you can harm your, your physical body that way, causing real problems. Um, those seats are not designed for human beings to be able to move around and get that kind of activity required to make sure that your, you know, your skin doesn't break down or you don't get a pressure sore or, or things like that. And so uh, even the restroom situation on airlines is virtually inaccessible. I know that some, some cross country and international flights um, have aisle chairs on board that they can, a stewardess can help you get in and then get to a restroom. And, and some of the new airliners, I think Airbus in particular, um, have started to design restrooms and, and, uh, and doors and walls that kind of pivot, essentially creating a room that's more private that you can, you know, do your business in. Um, those are things that, you know, you just don't really think about unless you're faced with them and they can, range from uncomfortable to dangerous when it comes to your physical health. And that doesn't even get into the issues about, you know, other people handling your power chair that costs $15,000 or losing parts of, off your chair or damaging uh, pieces of equipment. I remember flying back from the East Coast uh, a number of years ago now, but um, there was some kind of labor dispute with the union and the airlines. And I remember seeing uh, out the window when I was loaded onto the plane, I remember seeing um, my chair specifically taken off the conveyor belt and kept on the tarmac along with some baby strollers. And, you know, I figured they put it on the plane and I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see him, but I figured it would get on the plane. 
usually does. Well, I got to Boise and it was told that there was, you know, no, no, no chairs or strollers were put on the planes because there was some kind of labor conflict. I don't know if that was true or not. I just know that I showed up in Boise unable to walk and I did not have my chair anymore. Um, and those sorts of things really haunt and plague folks with disabilities who have to travel by, uh, by commercial airliner. Um, what are, is that an experience you've had and what, what are some of the ideas that we're hearing, seeing that are evolving out there to address some of these concerns, these experiences that we have flying? Yeah. I mean, there, I think everybody's had similar experiences to that. As a matter of fact, that there was a, a story over the weekend where a woman uh, who flew out here for the ADA celebration at the White House um, last week, uh, her chair didn't make it home. So she had no wheelchair when she got home. They put it on a different, or they forgot to put it on the plane, so it didn't make it. And then she was supposed to be on the next plane, and it wasn't. So it's like, yeah, I mean, she ended up sitting in a in a really uncomfortable chair for a really long time, like four or five hours, I think. And then, I mean, uh, the guy from who's the chair of the Paralyzed Veterans of America board was dropped in the jetway, got broke his tailbone, ended up getting a, a pressure ulcer from it, and then ended up in the hospital. Spent six months in the hospital, damn near died from infections. So, uh, I mean, there's a thousand stories like that. So yeah, there. I mean, this is going to be one of the top priorities that the Department of Transportation has changed this. So there, there are going to be some rules that are proposed around, you know, breaking wheelchairs and it being a per se violation of their carrier access act. There's going to be some rules around people who uh, transfer you that they have to transfer you safe, so that people don't get injured or their lives um, so interrupted. I mean, um, there's a number of like wheelchair athletes who've flown for either the Olympic Games or the Paralympic Games or or the Invicta Games in England. And they get there and their chairs are all destroyed and they can't participate in the events that they flew there for. I mean, lots of us have had those business kinds of experiences too. We fly somewhere for business and we can't complete our business because our chairs are destroyed. Or we have lost time from work for the injuries. We have like medical costs because of the injuries. We have cost to replace the equipment. I mean, it's just on and on. So they're going to have to do this in a safe way. Uh, we're going to establish some rules around that. Uh, but really, the major fix to this is really allowing people to stay in their chairs and fly on airplanes. Uh, and that, to me, is the ultimate thing we need to do to try to fix this. So any other form of transportation you get on in your wheelchair. So over the road buses we talked about, city buses we talked about, ships we talked about, um, taxi cabs, um, Amtrak, anything you get on for transportation, you go in your chair. Airplanes are the only form of transportation where we have to give up 
our mobility devices to get on the plane. So we're going to change that and we're going to work to get a wheelchair spot on airplanes so that we can fly in our own chairs. So those are kind of the things that are the department's working on around this issue. That's fantastic. What what about trains? Um, you mentioned a little bit about your trip with Amtrak and um, Amtrak is is a is a system I have not yet been on, but I'm eager um, to travel on because it it is such an incredible way to see the country. And um, if you don't want to fly, it could be a, a much more comfortable way to, you know, get from Salt Lake City to Chicago, for example. And hearing you talk about that trip you took reminds me of a train trip that I took. I had the opportunity to travel by train, the Trans-Siberian Rail in Russia. And we took a train from Chelyabinsk to Novosibirsk and then to Tomsk in the, in, out in Siberia. And that was a, a, an international and a domestic train, uh, one transfer. And we were two days on the Trans-Siberian Rail. And I got to tell you, it, it, it sounds like my trip on the Trans-Siberian Rail may have been a little more comfortable than your trip on Amtrak. And I can guarantee you there was, wasn't was a thing accessible on the Trans-Siberian Rail trip, not a thing. Uh, we had to get carried on, carried off, kind of stuck in that room for two days. Um, it, it was, you know, the only, the only saving grace was that it was kind of an adventure, but you're ready for that. Um, where, where are we going with, with Amtrak and what's exciting about what's happening uh, with, with Amtrak? I know I've talked to you a little bit about the manufacturing facility uh, that you were able to visit. Maybe you can share with our listeners um, what you've learned and, and the direction that uh, rail travel is going in the United States. So uh, it's not going to look anything like it does in a few more years. Uh, the only the only problem is it's going to take a few years to make it different. Um, we're going to buy, we're going to replace every Amtrak train. So the whole fleet is going to be replaced. So all of the inaccessible cars are going to be gone. Uh, we've been working with um, Stevens, which is the, the place you're talking about. It's in Sacramento. They're the manufacturers of the train cars. And we've been working with them and we've been working with Amtrak to design cars that are fully accessible. As a matter of fact, I drove up to uh, Philadelphia this week, last week, uh, to look at a mock-up of the new uh, Amtrak dining car. Um, and so, so went through that and discussed accessibility issues. but. Frankly, there weren't that there wasn't that many things to talk to them about. I mean, they've done a really good job of incorporating into the dining car the accessibility features. We've already been through several mock-ups of the Amtrak train cars, both the business and the coach class. And so um, those are going to be, be looking much different. The reason I took the over the road, over the long haul uh trip on Amtrak was to help identify what really needs to change with those trains. And, uh, and and that way, my trip on Amtrak across the country was really fruitful because 
I have a whole bunch of stuff that needs to change, but uh, included in that is the accessibility of the sleeper cars and then the ability to um, visit the dining car and visit the observation car, which is not hard, it's not that difficult to do. We can put elevators in those cars so that people can go up to the second uh, story on those cars and see the observation deck and and get the same benefit of the of the view that people without disabilities do. Uh, there's also, you know, it's not just physical access. There's, you know, we've been working on the issues for access for folks who are deaf. We've been working on access issues for folks who are blind and all of those mock-ups. And so there's a lot of work we're doing to replace the entire Amtrak fleet. And uh, that's going to happen, but it's gonna, it's not all going to happen within a year, right? So uh, it takes longer to build all these and get them distributed and put into service and all that stuff, kind of stuff. So, but within the next four or five years, you're going to see all the Amtrak trains become new. Uh, a little longer down the road, like it, it, somewhere probably between five and 10 years, we'll see all the long um, haul train sets replaced. So, and I, they're going to also like re. Um, invigorate some of the some of the service that they don't have anymore like boise right amtrak quit serving boise like decades ago and um i've been encouraging them when they're talking about cities to re reinstate service i've been encouraging them to do that in in idaho in boise um at the very least boise but anyway um i don't know how much influence i could have over that part but I mean, yeah, the whole experience is going to change greatly over the next five to 10 years. So, yeah, that is so great to hear. Um, and to hear that time frame is, is even better. I know it's, it's a, it's a ways out, but, um, not far enough out that you can't start planning a trip. What, um, you, you mentioned, you know, really this issue is a cross disability issue for folks, uh, who are deaf or hard of hearing folks who are blind or low vision. Um, have you had any conversations with the train designers, manufacturers about the integration of uh, digital accessibility features, um, not only accessible websites for scheduling and information in general, but any of those these emerging tools that we if you have access to a smartphone, for example, you have access to tap into all kinds of information, um, Bluetooth beacons, navigation devices, um, particularly in airports uh, and, and places where you got a lot going on and you need to find your way around, you know, sometimes quickly and efficiently. And I'm wondering if um, if the future, uh, you know, holds the implementation of those kinds of digital accessibility features in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wayfinding is a big is a big topic that we're talking about. So apps that are, you know, wayfinding for trains, for buses, I mean, for especially for automated vehicles. Yeah, we're definitely talking about that. Also talking about, the, you know, integrating things like if you had an Amtrak app, looks like you have like a Starbucks app, you know, you could order your food in advance and then go to the dining car and pick it up. Uh, it's already it's already uh, made and, and waiting there for you and you've already paid for it on the app. I mean, 
you know, that kind of stuff we're, we're talking about. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, why not? Why not include all that, especially the wayfinding stuff, I think it really has a future. And um, so does automated vehicles. I think for a lot of people with different kinds of disabilities, automated vehicles, especially for those who can't drive or, or don't drive, um, automated vehicles hold some real promise for the, them and their independence. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't talk about transportation, not talk about that stuff at this point. My car that I, I just got um, has both adaptive cruise, which means it stays a certain like distance behind the car in front of you. So you don't really even have to touch the accelerator once you get on the highway. And then um, also it has line or a lane control. So you can, it will keep you in the lane. And then as you know, like the, uh, some cars have like um, completely automated driving to where you don't have to drive it at all. Um, Tesla's I'm thinking was what I'm thinking about on its autopilot program. But so anyway, I mean, we're, and I think a lot of cars are moving toward that and public transportation for that matter. So I think before long, you'll be seeing uh, electric buses that are automated and there's no driver. You know, it's going to happen in our lifetime anyway. You, you know, we didn't really talk about, um, you know, trains and planes seem really obvious and buses, public buses, at least not cross country, but public buses in cities. Um, you know, that's been a topic and an issue of work for many, many years. And you're right. There are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of buses on our urban and even in rural communities now that have, you know, adapted and become more accessible, which is fantastic. I think about even in the city of Boise, um, the bus system um, today versus where it was in 1998, uh, for example, um, much, much better equipment, much better buses, much easier to get on and off. Um, it's much, much better. The one thing I'm curious, and this may or may not be something that um, a space that your work takes you to, but the the cab companies, taxi companies, and ride shares is is a really interesting topic. The changes that have happened with um, cab companies moving from you know your traditional company with a large fleet to operator owner one offs, and now with everybody being a taxi, you know, driving for either Lyft or Uber, um, it seems like there's a real risk of not, of, of losing ground and losing capability or capacity for accessible transportation because the cab companies with fleets seem to be an entity that you can influence and politely ask, if not force through licensing to ensure they have vehicles in their fleet operating that are accessible. The one-off drivers, that's a, that's a harder nut to crack. And the Uber and Lyft drivers, good luck. Uber, I know, and maybe Lyft have, have, have implemented what's called, you know, at least Uber is Uber Wave, which is wheelchair accessible. Um, vehicle, uh, but that's contingent upon whatever community you're in. 
And I know in Boise, for example, I, I do not know that there is a single accessible vehicle that operates under the banner of Uber or Lyft. I may be wrong, but uh, to date, I don't, I have not come across that. So I'm worried about this uh, democratization of transportation is once again moving so quickly and is so adaptable that it is leaving behind and maybe sucking oxygen out of the room for on-demand type accessible transportation. Is that something that you've noticed or experienced or something that's talked about in the transportation mix? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've experienced it, I've noticed it, and it's being talked about. Um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, the last time I was in Boise, I don't think there, I don't think there's even an accessible cab there. So it's like, yeah, it's problematic. Uh, I, when I, I just got back from a trip to Seattle where I attended a all wheels up working group and that what we worked on was was basically a wheelchair spot on airplanes and it was really a good meeting but when i got home at the airport i waited an hour for a wheelchair accessible cab and i i sat there and i watched you know able-bodied person after able-bodied person after able-bodied person get in a cab and leave they wait maybe three minutes or five at the most and um I wait there now. It's like that's got to change too. I mean, uh, I think the way Uber is going to get fixed is really by lawsuit. I don't, and Lyft is even worse than Uber. So I know it's going to take a lawsuit for Lyft to do anything around this. Um, but I think you're right. I think you're right to be concerned too. I think. You know, it could suck the air out of the room and make it feel that even accessible services we have now, you know, go away. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And, you know, that that even brings us to, uh, you know, more more the discussion about e-scooters, which, uh, you know, anybody who knows me who's listening to this is probably like, here we go again. But, um, you know, for 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 decades in this country, we have had in an ex, even beyond an experiment but with public right-of-way we have had a ongoing national experiment with public rights of way sidewalks crossings that has been as far as i can tell almost a complete success i i would not have ever thought i would see companies being allowed to essentially put out a product where consumers of that product can dump that product in the middle of a sidewalk or in the middle of a curb ramp with no repercussions, no enforcement, no remediation. I drive around the city of Boise today and I see these e-scooters everywhere. They're prolific. And more often than not, I see them parked in the middle of the public right-of-way, in the middle of the sidewalk. And I think about the friends I have who are blind, who navigate with a guide dog or a white cane, and I see them out on the sidewalks in their neighborhoods um, trying to navigate these clunky, heavy, difficult to move objects. And I can't think of any other industry that would, or any other 
you know, industry where a government would tolerate or allow this type of behavior. Um, you know, we don't let kids, you know, we get upset when kids leave their toys laying around the living room. And here we have an industry that's based on consumers essentially dumping these things anywhere they want. And most of the time they're lazy and they dump them right in the middle of the street or the, or the, or the sidewalk. And all the rest of us have to like deal with navigating around that. And I can understand that some folks like that technology and that I'm sure it reduces the number of vehicle trips, which has benefits for congestion and the environment. But I'm wondering if personally, especially on the East Coast, if you've experienced the same frustration and if there has been any discussion about, you know, how do we how do we fight back and defend what has largely been a safe and and free public right of way that is now being taken away? Yeah, we we do talk about it and uh it it does happen out here in the east, but not as much, I don't think. Uh, it was for a while, but a lot of uh, rules have been, inst you know, instituted that you can't do that, and it's it's mostly from the companies um, because they can they can um, track where the I think what they call it micro transportation now, like e scooters and stuff like that. Um, they can tell where you know they know who was operating it and they can kind of tell where it's been left and um, they'll find people who leave their um, devices in the sidewalk like that so it, it's really i think the companies can really play an important role in in enforcing that or in addressing that issue and then enforcing it so you you don't see it as much around here anymore it was pretty prevalent when they first came out in dc but um now it's like it, it's not really something you see on the sidewalks anymore i wonder if there might be you know more uh or larger well-resourced organizations that can put the thumb on that um out there with legal action maybe i know that well there was a lot of there's a lot of disability organizations went after them. i know that so for all the reasons you just sort of outlined yeah what so as we come to the top of the hour here on this interview what what have we not talked about that you want our list, listeners to know like what what else might be on the horizon uh, around transportation that's important for the disability community to be aware of, to engage in um, as a kind of parting thought, like what, what do you want to make sure um, we got on our radar? Uh, electric fueling stations for one, like there's a requirement that each state, each state just got their plans approved around electric fueling stations, but uh, private fueling stations are already going up. But there's a requirement for the states to in, engage the public in these discussions around how they plan for these electric fueling stations that DOT's funding. You know, I, I want to make sure people uh, think about getting involved in those stakeholder meetings and stuff and 
expressing the issues around accessibility of those so that if somebody owns an electric vehicle, they can get around uh, or they can uh, fuel it if they got a disability. And then I think the other thing I would just mention is that, you know, there's going to be new rules coming out here uh, probably November or December around public rights away. Uh, we in 32 years with the, the ADA, we have not had rules governing access on public rights away. Um, and that means like sidewalks, street crossings, bus stops, all those kinds of things. Uh, they've been using some of the standards under the ADA, but there's never been a comprehensive set of standards. And those are going to be coming out in November. And they're the product of November or December, and they're the product of uh, work at the Access Board, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Transportation. So um, happy to see those finally coming out after all these years. Yeah, and on the, the electric vehicle charging stations, that's a really good catch. Um, uh, for, for listeners who may not know what we're talking about, uh, you know, there's a push to install these charging stations um, all over the country. And my, my feeling is that some businesses are installing these in, in locations that um, um, are, are not basically not wide enough so that an accessible electric vehicle could pull up, a person could get out of that vehicle and then make their way around because the charging station the charging hookup on the vehicle could be on the driver's side for example so you would need to come around your vehicle if you're in a wheelchair and have room uh, and be able to reach the the charging apparatus um, you'll be able to get up to it i've seen some of these installed uh, you know on a curb set back from the curb so it can make it difficult to actually approach and reach and grab the charging handle and then have enough room to maneuver to that port on your vehicle and plug that that uh, charging adapter into your vehicle. Um, what what I think is happening, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, folks are taking parking spots that may be, you know, one or two spots that are, are kind of extra spots at a convenience store, for example, that was where they had room and they're turning those kind of spots into charging spots, but they're, they're in no way, shape or form accessible. And so if you have an electric vehicle and you happen to use a wheelchair or need more room, your you potentially might not be able to use that station. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And, or like the, sometimes the nozzles are so heavy, people can't like pick those up. You know, and the other difference is like if you're filling a car with gas, there's a there's this fueling station attendant that's supposed to help you fill your car. Um, electric fueling stations don't have attendants. They're just these machines that kind of like you were saying, get put up everywhere. Right. So um, it's not like you can just get one of the attendants to fuel your car for you. So yeah, it's a, it's a big issue, and I see them going up all over the place. These are all privately funded ones, uh, but they're going up and they're not accessible. So, 
Well, there is certainly no shortage of work to do, Kelly, and I'm glad that you're doing it. Um, it's important work. I think everyone with a disability in one way or another experiences some of these frustrations or outright barriers trying to travel, whether it's effective communication or being able to access a, a website to get information, whether it's, you know, leaving one airport, getting on a plane and arriving at another airport without your chair or your adaptive equipment. Um, it's just great that we've got someone from Idaho who understands uh, under, understands our part of the country and what it's like to live in, in a rural state and um, somebody who can bring that experience and perspective to this conversation, which, which is, is so important. Um, you have any last thoughts, any last words for folks listening on this topic? Just again, it's always a pleasure to be talking to people in Idaho and I really do uh, miss and love you guys a lot. So keep up the good work. Well, thanks a lot, Kelly. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, the information you provided. Uh, hopefully we get to see you out here soon or uh, in DC on our next trip. And uh, for the listeners who have joined us for this episode, uh, I want to thank you for uh, tuning in and getting engaged. And we're going to wrap it up there. So stay independent. Out of here.